Welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Rick Maurer, author of Beyond the Wall of Resistance. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Rick Maurer, author of Beyond the Wall of Resistance. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, renowned change management expert Rick Maurer shares with us his insights on effectively managing business change by overcoming the three common change objections and better engaging the workforce in not only making the change, but in sustaining the results. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Rick Maurer, author of Beyond the Wall of Resistance, why 70% of all changes still fail, and what you can do about it. Rick is a renowned change management expert, speaker, and best-selling author. He is an advisor to business leaders from a variety of organizations throughout the world, including major Fortune 500 companies, as well as private and nonprofit institutions in industries such as aerospace, healthcare, chemicals, government, professional associations, telecommunications, and finance. Rick, welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Change management, of course, is so critically important in today's business world. You know, it seems that just for a company to keep up anymore nowadays, they have to always be changing. Now, what what bothers me, and I'm sure bothers a lot of the managers and executives in our audience, though, is that even though we have to change so much, 70% of the time, we still fail at those efforts. Rick, to start out our discussion this evening, if you might share with us what you see as the impact of the inability to effectively execute change and why companies experience such a high failure rate. Well, first of all, I mean, your your point uh, is well taken, and that is that we're in a state of constant change. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I can't think of a single client that I have, you know, whether it's in aerospace or government or healthcare or anywhere, that would say, no, no, things have been pretty stable the last year. I mean, it just, it just yeah. doesn't go with territory. And consequently, changes are a big deal. It's not like everything is stable and we're going to take a chance on this one project. And if it doesn't work, we can go back to things as normal. Mm-hmm. 
often there's a lot riding on a change. So, for instance, uh, just because the world is moving so fast and uh, companies uh, in particular are are much more global than they've they've ever been, that you're trying to you're trying to change technology so everyone can talk to each other. I have one client uh, whose team, mm-hmm. her team, is on four continents. Wow. Well, yeah. So if you try to change the technology and that doesn't work, and now they still can't talk to each other very well, that's going to slow things down. It's going to lead to mis- miscommunications. If you reorganize and you're ten time zones away from each other, it's pretty hard to kind of work out the bugs, to work out kind of the power issues that are going on, the, the who who makes decisions on this. I mean, they're just all it just gets exacerbated in this environment. Absolutely. And I personally can relate to the example of having teams on multiple continents. Just in my line of work, I work very frequently with our offices in India, with our offices in in London, and with the offices in Moscow. And communications is incredibly vital in order to keep just that pipeline moving and and those projects going. And you're right, without those those channels that are always functioning properly from the various offices, the projects just seem to go downhill from there. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and, uh, the only other thing I was going to say in response to your question, too, is that so – so projects can fail, and when projects fail, there's actually a bigger problem, and that is it, it sets things in motion for the next time, and it sets things in motion among the managers and employees of, oh, here we go again. Ah. And so now a, kind of a culture of failure uh, starts. Well, okay, this is a flavor of the month. We'll get behind it. We'll have a big meeting, and then it'll die. And then suddenly, you know, you just you, it, it, the failure becomes chronic. And by the way, that doesn't mean mm-hmm. every organization has that level of failure. But but those that do, it's it's hard to break that cycle. Oh, absolutely. And now, Rick, I'm also wondering if change is so important to an organization, and therefore by extension to that organization's workforce, why is it then that people continue to, in in many cases, very fervently resist change? Well, I happen to believe that people resist change for very good reasons. Okay. That there are no born resistors out there. It's not some lost personality type that's out there. Mm -hmm. you resist, I resist in response to something. So let's say we work in an organization and the head person says, all right, we're going to be closing the offices where you are and where I am. And, uh, and suddenly, both of us go, uh-oh. Of course, we never say that out loud. We go, they're closing this office here? Yes. What's going to happen to me? I get a mortgage. I get a kid in college. And, and so... The fear comes in, not because you walked in the door that morning wanting to disrupt the good plans of other people. Change change gets personal very, very quickly. So it can be a change that that has an impact on 10,000 people, but as far as you're concerned, it's what's it going to do to me. Right. And that's not selfish. It's human nature. So I think the, the good news is that resistance and support are two sides of a single coin, and leaders who understand that then have opportunities to build support rather than allow 
uh, resistance to form. Well, now, Rick, does resistance have to occur with every change, or, or can we avoid resistance? Oh, we can. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's there been there were some studies done that put percentages on people called early adopters mm-hmm. and, and laggards and all of that. And overall, as a statistical analysis, that's perfectly fine. That we say, all right, I forget what the percentage is, but 15% are early adopters, let's say, and 15% are laggards and so sure. on. Sure. As a big statistical thing, that's okay. But for you and me, in our organizations, we ought to forget about that because how we lead change will have a huge impact on whether people get excited, get engaged, get committed, or whether they go, oh, here we go again. So it's not like I just happen to be working with this this team of laggards, you know, people who don't want to do right, any work. Right. It, there's something going on in how we're leading the change. And so I've seen leaders who really do the planning well. They know how to engage people, and they just don't get a lot of resistance. Now, I want to go back to your book because in Beyond the Wall of Resistance, you present what I'll call the cycle of change. Yes. Would you briefly describe that particular cycle and the phases that make it up? So if, if, if the listeners just would imagine uh, a circle, and I will just arbitrarily put 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock on it so people can picture it in their mind's eye, a change begins with people being in the dark. And nothing wrong with that. It happens to all of us. Um, that's, that's where change begins. We can't see the need for a change. But then something happens uh, where we see the challenge at 3 o'clock and we go, oh, we better do something. I was just watching uh, the news today, and there's a couple of major storms out of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. One's pretty fully formed, and you're looking at the radar, and the other one is like, oh, kind of so-so. Well, if you're looking at radar screens and you work for the Weather Service, you know, those little blips on the screen aren't going to get your attention very much. It's when they start to form in something big that we go, uh-oh. Yes. And that's what needs to happen in an organization is people have to get to the uh-oh stage like, whoa, this could be a level four storm. And it can either be the uh-oh, like we've got a problem, or it can be, wow, we've got an opportunity. But there has to be that fire in the belly to move from in the dark to seeing the challenge. Okay. And once we do that, and it doesn't have to be everybody in the organization sees it, but we have enough critical mass, then we move on down to 4 or 5 o'clock where we do the typical things to get started. We say, all right, how are we going to seize this opportunity or work with this problem? Um, what are our goals? What are our plans going to be? How are we going to get people involved? How are we going to measure things? I mean, typical kind of project management kind of stuff. And if that works, we go over to 6, 7, 8 o'clock on this which I call, it's, it's kind of the rollout. It's where you've taken your plans and you say, all right, so today we're going to go live. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've yes. you know. And a lot of people think that's the end of the change. All right, we went live. We said we'd go live on, on this particular date, and we did. Congratulations, we're done. But rollout is only rollout. There's another step that's really important, and that's at 9 o'clock, and that's results. Mm-hmm. Rollout only means you've put a lot of effort into it. Results means you're getting what you wanted out of it. And that those little steps from rollout, 7 o'clock, up to 8 o'clock, up to 9 o'clock where results are, get forgotten quite often. Yes. And 
can create huge, huge problems. So where we want to go on the cycle is 9 o'clock. We want to get to results. And even when we get there and even when we're successful, the cycle doesn't stop there. And at some point, the cycle will just naturally want to go to 10 or 11 o'clock where it's time to move on. And it's not because the change was a bad idea and didn't work, but technology changes, the marketplace changes, threats change, and, and consequently something new is called for. And so life goes on. You know, Rick, as you were describing that 9 o'clock position, yeah. the, the image that I usually present to folks as I talk about change is one of a graph, if you would imagine an, an X and a Y, just a simple graph, and the x-axis is time and the y-axis is productivity. And I tell them, always when we first implement a change, as people get used to it, the productivity drops. And we have to be mindful of the result and we have to monitor that because we want to see productivity be higher than what it was before we started in order to return that investment that we made on our, on our effort. And to your point, so often... I, one, don't see folks monitoring their productivity in, in the case of this example at all or the results that they're getting. The project's done. If yep. they do good project management, they do an assessment, they put it in a file, and away they go. <laughs> and the team is disbanded. Right. And, and the organizations that always do so much better are the ones that monitor the results. Yes. And they have clear – I should also mention they have clear targets of what results they ought to be achieving – before they start the project. Yeah, and an important part, of, and I agree with you completely, and an important part of that is that they're willing to sit down to monitor what's going on and sit down and say, what are the implications of this? Right. It's one thing to monitor and go, oh, well, yeah, those, those are pretty bad scores, and then not do anything about it because politically it's kind of dangerous to say, hey, my part of the project isn't going so well. Right. And what it takes is guts to sit there and say, hey, we said we were going to meet these numbers and we're not meeting them. We need to take a look at that. Right. And those are the organizations who, who turn monitoring something from just an exercise into a, kind of a critical management uh, skill or a critical management resource, if you will. I couldn't agree more. And now, Rick, I want to keep that project management focus just for uh, one more question. And so often... I also see the organizations I work with or in the past the ones I've worked for, they roll the change management into the project. So essentially they have this project kick off and they're going along and going along and sometime after they've started, they kick off a change management effort. <laughs> and it just seems that uh, that's kind of the wrong time to start your change management is during the project's execution, that maybe we should start the change management before we start the project. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on, on that concept. <laughs> um, can I just say ditto? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I agree with you. And change management ought to be just part of the project. Mm -hmm. So when you've got an idea for a new initiative. We don't have to call it a change, but you know, we call it whatever it is, some sort of something new that you're going after. How you're going to get people engaged, how you're going to do the project, you ought to be thinking about right 
from the beginning. Uh, because if you don't, you, you, one thing you do is you allow things to fester, and you can, you can think you've just started really well, and you've already, in those opening couple of weeks, have created tremendous resistance, which was entirely avoidable. Absolutely. Um, and it's entirely, our, like you said, our fault. We created it. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the things um, that, you know, if, if people will think about that cycle again, I talked about moving from in the dark to see the challenge. I call that, in my view, that's the first stage in the life of a change, and I call that making a compelling case for change. And making a case isn't showing people a bunch of PowerPoint slides because that's just rational data. Right. And nobody, nobody buys a car based on, rational data. Nobody gets married you know, and says, hey, I'd like you to see the checklist that I came up with uh, for the woman I'm about to marry. Yeah. I've, you know, <laughs> yes. And there's 17 things in the plus column. And only, you know, I mean, you just right. don't do that. Right. And, and, and what happens is we miss that step. And so once people first hear about it, they're hearing about the nuts and the bolts and the timelines. And, and people are going, why are we doing this? And so change management ought to be there right from day one to say, all right, so how do we make a case so that people are as worried about things or as excited about things as you are, Mr. and Ms. Leader? Yeah, and you know, I also find that the whole rational data case for change, that rational is in the eye of the beholder. And like Hmm. you talked about in an earlier example, it might be very rational to close this office, but not for the folks that work in that office. (laughs) Even if they just now have to drive across town to go to a different office. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, data isn't always what's needed to convince folks that the change is really the one they want to get on board with. Right. Yeah. Well, now, Rick, you've implied, or at least it seemed to me that you've implied that there are other forces in play that have been the cause of the repeated failures that businesses realize when they're implementing change. Would you talk a little bit about those other forces? Yeah. Yeah. And let me make a distinction Mm -hmm. for for the people listening to our conversation. If, If somebody's driving to work right now and he or she says, you know, basically we do pretty good with change. We're not successful all the time, but then who is? But basically, we do okay. Then the force that I'm about, force I'm about to talk about, probably are not going to be all that important for them. It's worth paying attention to, you know. But but it's not going to be as critical as that man or woman driving to work and saying, "Whoa, I I I just missed my exit because I Uh. (laughs) because I really want to hear this because we are failing way too often." Yes. So so the things that you're asking about are the chronic conditions. Mm When yes. to fail. So, so the first thing is lack of knowledge, and that is the leaders don't know how to lead change. And I, frankly, don't think that's a huge problem. In some organizations, it is. Okay. Uh, uh, two guys, Jeffrey Pfeffer and Robert Sutton, wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Knowing-Doing Gap, knowing, K-N-O-W, knowing. And they said that organizations know a lot of stuff, but it doesn't get put into action. So there's some sort of gap between knowing things and doing things. And I I reread that book when I was uh, working on the revision of this book, and I thought, boy, that's true. That's absolutely true for change management. 
that in most organizations that I work in, I could take a random group of, of executives and managers and say, all right, so you got a day. Come up with a change management plan okay. that, that you really think would work. And I, in most organizations where I work, they would come up with something pretty good. Okay. I, 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 would, I would wager money on that. The one place where knowledge is lacking is the area of why do people resist change? Why do they support it? And that lack of knowledge, it doesn't get taught much. And our, our strategies for working with resistance are wrong. They, 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 they make things worse. And consequently, not understanding the notion of support and resistance can lead us down some traps and can lead us into some strategies that, that just aren't good for us. Okay. But basically, I think most of the people listening to this probably know what to do. So the second thing is if people know what to do, then the question is, why aren't they doing it? And this is a huge one in, I think, most organizations that we don't do a good job of giving people an opportunity to develop the skills. We do a good job of filling their heads with knowledge and giving them books and having good speakers come in, but we don't do a good job of letting people go out on the driving range and practice and practice and practice okay. before they play in a tournament. And if you look, and there's been some wonderful research on mastery and people who really get good at things, and they look at musicians, they look at mm -hmm. artists, they look at athletes, dancers, and all of these people have practiced thousands of hours. Yes. And not just put in the time, but practiced diligently and you know, kind of consciously. And so they're not just running by things. Uh, that They really are working at it. And organizations don't give us that opportunity very often. So, so instead of going to, you know, what happens is you go to a class and you say, okay, great, I, I think I, I, I watched all these videos on golf. I think I'm ready to play in the Masters. Well, there's a big gap there because you haven't practiced. <laughs> you haven't had a chance to fail. And a big part of learning is having the opportunity to fail. Mm -hmm. And and I don't mean and I don't mean failure in some negative uh, right. call your therapist thing. But you need to be able to go, huh? Wonder why that didn't work. I mean, some of my whole interest in working with resistance in the first place came from some pretty dreadful experiences when I first became sure. a consultant over 30 years ago. And I go, what's going on? And I had the good fortune of working for a while with a guy named Lloyd Richards who was much more experienced than me. And he would just pull me aside and go, Rick, Rick, you're making it worse. Here's what yeah. you're doing. And, and I could learn. And yeah. it, was, it was painful in the time, but boy, that lesson stuck. And it, it, it stuck in a very exciting way. Uh, and, and, you know, and it, it's helped me actually get very, very interested in this whole thing of why people support and resist and what we can do as consultants and leaders and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I couldn't agree more that we truly learn through our failures. In fact, they say, and, and I like the saying, is that we gain experience not through our successes, but through the understanding of our failures and yes. why we failed. And if we have a, I'll call it a positive work environment that recognizes failures as learning opportunities, yeah. then we can build that skill base for change management. But as you said, that work environment doesn't always exist. And then we just don't give people the opportunity because it doesn't exist to 
learn through a bit of trial and error right. and, and afford them the constructive opportunity to learn through failure. Well, yeah, and which actually what you're saying leads to the third one, mm-hmm. which has to do with context and the culture of the organization. And as you suggest, some organizations don't allow failure. So if that's the case, if I get dinged pretty bad every time I try something and it doesn't work, like let's say I try a planning meeting that's really going to get people engaged yeah. and it doesn't work well, and suddenly people go, what were you doing, Mao, or what were you thinking? I'll go, well, I'm never going to do that again. What I'm trying to do is cover myself. I'm not trying to learn from it because it's it's risky to learn from it. So the, the third thing is if people know what to do and they can actually do it, does the culture support you doing it? Okay. And in some organizations, the answer is yes. And in some organizations, no. I remember I'm working um, – at a university once, and it was it was unbe- the morale was unbelievably bad. This was in the early days of computers, mm-hmm. and the head of this particular department of 500, he had the capacity to go into people's computers um, electronically and change documents they were working on. And so you could come in in the morning wow. and open up that letter you were writing to somebody and realize it had been changed. Oh, wow. Well... Yeah, well, you can imagine the fear and suspicion. And I had this one client, I'll call her Betty, mm-hmm. and who had her team of about 12, the morale was unbelievable, unbelievably high. Okay. And I kept, I kept wondering why. And one of the things that she did is, I mean, she, she was a realist and she knew that we could see, you know, that those of us who were, I was sort of in there part time, uh, we could see the organization, and sometimes somebody come up with an idea, and she said, look, I think it's probably a good idea. I can't do it. Politically, I can't do it. And everybody go, okay, got it, baby. Yeah. But other times, she would take the heat. And I, always, I sometimes thought of her like being out in a hurricane with an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And we were protected, but, man, <laughs> she was taking a beating. But she knew that what she was doing is working against the culture, and she got results that other people, units within this organization were not getting and so they started to give her more latitude yeah so it worked i think she paid a price for it but it worked for productivity now it never changed the culture i mean people didn't say gee what can we learn from her sadly right but i think managers need to look at that and say does my culture support what i want to do and if not am i willing to take the hits to make it the kind of place to where we can lead change in a way that I think actually could work. Right, and I believe that works. In fact, that's the style of leadership I was taught when I went to the Naval Academy, and it's the style of leadership I like to think that I practice. And that's one in where there's anything that's praiseworthy. The -hmm. praise goes to the member of the organization that was responsible for achieving that. And I, I, as a, a manager or a leader don't need that praise. I, I get it by default for any of the good things that my folks do, so I, I just don't need to worry about it. On yeah. the flip side, if something goes wrong, I am responsible. And it's not that we don't hold our people accountable for the things that they, they do, but from an organizational perspective, I'm responsible to take the heat for anything that goes on in my organization. And it does. It creates that safety, and people become willing to make the extra effort, to try new things. And I find that morale and, and productivity and everything 
just gets a big upswell yeah. because of those well, kind of practices. Well, you know, I'm really glad you used a military example because I think that sometimes people could be listening to us talking and going, well, that's nice if you had all kinds of time and if you had time to be touchy-feely and get people involved all the time. But the military units are built on hierarchy and a a real appreciation for chain of command, and yet sometimes you find just incredibly good performance because also built into that that hierarchy and chain of command is a set of values. Yes. one kind of value is what you just described. And so you really can't, where people people feel engaged. I, I have friends who are former Marines, and man, if I say ex-Marine, they're all over me. You do not say ex-Marine. They are former Marines. And the pride, that when they talk about the units they were in and the people they uh, were with, is not something that I hear in most other organizations. I have really not found it to exist in other organizations, huh. so just from my experience, and I, yeah. I was an officer on a submarine, so huh. needless to say, you know, uh, everyone relied on everybody else. There was yeah. not a single person on that ship that wasn't critically important to the well-being of everybody else hmm. on that ship. Yeah. So, now, Rick, early in your book, you presented four common mistakes that leaders make when attempting to make a change. Yeah. What is the one of those four that you find to be the most damaging to maybe the leader or the organization? And how can it be avoided? Well, it's hard to pick just one, but but I will. Okay. Um, it, it, it's going to sound awfully simplistic, uh, so I hope the listeners will bear with me. And that's why before how. And what I mean by that is talking to people, the very stakeholders, about how we're going to do it before they've answered the question, why is this important? Okay. Um, I did a study, a fairly informal study, of, of people who read my newsletter and a number of years ago. And I said, think about change, a big change in your organization that either went really well or one that went really badly. And... Uh, and, and then I like I want to ask you a few questions about it, and the questions all were based on those points on the cycle that we just talked about. And one of the things that I that I always knew why before how like making a compelling case for change was important. Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized just how important it was in the organizations that did that well. This is way before we've talked about what we're going to do, who's going to be involved, any of that. The organizations that really got people. To, as they say, see the burning platform or feel the burning platform, if you will, just didn't have the kind of resistance and the kind of problems later on that others did. And in fact, their success rate was higher. Okay. Those organizations that sort of skipped that went right to how because we're, we're late, we're late for very important days. Yeah, had to keep putting out fires all the way through, and their success rate was much much lower. Mm-hmm. Okay. And by the way, I, and I say all that because th- that why before how isn't isn't a hard thing to deal with. I mean, it's not you don't need a new personality to be able to do it. It's just right. paying attention to, to to that kind of stuff. I see that a lot in the projects we talked about earlier, where the change management happens as a part of the project. It's really a part of the development of the how we're going to do whatever it is we're going to do, 
and change yes, management is just part of that checklist. And yep. it's it's not why. They're putting the why well after the how. And it's it's the critical flaw. Yeah. Or they're making the assumption that people once they once they get into it, they'll see why it's important. Yes. And when you get down in the weeds, it's hard. <laughs> it's just hard to to figure out. So where, where are we headed? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to see the uh, forest for the trees in in that case because yeah. you're you're down in yeah. there. Now, Rick, what would you advise leaders to do who want to improve on their change management skills? One thing is to, is to go through um, the the three of the four things that we've talked about already, and just and first thing, just ask themselves. Do I know how to lead change? If I had to, right now, uh, pull the car over to the side of the road, could I map out a pretty good generic change management plan that would be likely to get the kind of support and committed commitment that I'd want to do? Okay. And, you know, and, and then, if you really have guts, bring in a couple people who are the kind of people who will tell you the truth. Um, as I, I talk about in one of my books, Coffee with Joe. Joe can be either gender, and Joe's the kind of person who will tell it like it is. And, and Joe, the Joes of the world don't understand the, the, the phrase career-limiting move. I mean, they'll just tell you. Yes. And bring a couple of those people in who you know it's safe for them to tell you the truth and say, you know, I did an assessment of my own skills at leading change, and here's some of the things that I think I'm good at, some things I don't think I'm so good at. I would really like your reaction to that. And then the best thing to do is say that and then shut up. And if they say, well, yeah, you know, Nathan, you're not so good at that, you don't come back with, oh, yeah, but see, you don't understand. You weren't in that meeting. and had, Right. You know, because they'll shut up. So the first thing is I would do some sort of assessment. You don't have to go out and spend money on an assessment. Just, you know, you and Amir mm-hmm. should do it. The second thing is, all right, now I, okay, so, now I know what to do. If I don't know what to do, then then read a book. Uh, take take some training. Ask some other people how they learn. Sure. Uh, the uh, and there's plenty of really good resources out there. Um, I did a just two days ago. I did a, an Amazon search on the phrase change management, not a Google search, an Amazon uh, search, okay. and I get, came up with just about 1,400 responses. Wow. So there's a lot of resources out yeah. there. Yeah. So this, so let's say I know what to do, pretty much know what to do. Then the question is, can I turn what I know how to do into action? Can I actually go out on the, the, the playing field and play the game? And can I, you know, can I learn from, uh, can I be adaptable? And if not, then where am I going to learn those skills? Are In one way, since the organization probably isn't giving you that opportunity, are there places where I can start small or can start Outside of the uh, of the glare of the spotlights, okay. I remember working with a, a government agency in Canada once, and I was in the headquarters in, in Ottawa, and I was saying something about this, and this guy who was head of this ministry started laughing, and he said, "You know, the most innovative things are happening in Manitoba, which is 2,000 miles from here." And he said, "That's because we can't; those of us in headquarters can't get out there very often." <laughs> you know, yes. so. so Find your own Manitoba. Find a project that is certainly important, but it's not getting that day-to-day scrutiny. Hey, how are you doing with that, Mary? How are you doing? Yeah. It, it gives you a chance to have some breathing room. Okay. Uh, and attach yourself to a mentor. I mean, and, you know, people are busy, but say, hey, what would you think if once a week, you know, if, if you're in town, I'm in town, 
I'll buy you lunch or buy you a cup of coffee or at least once a week, can we have 15 minutes on the phone? And what you do is you get advice from that man or woman on leading change. Those would be two huge things that you could do. Sure. Oh, that's great. Now, Rick, before we close, you have several websites, including <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I hope I've got them all. www.rickmauer.com, www.changemanagementnews.com, and www.askaboutchange.com. And I have visited oh. them all, and you provide oh. a lot of resources on managing business change. Could you describe for our listeners what they might find if they visit one or all three of your websites? Well, <laughs> well it's really funny. i got to tell you, the Ask About Change, I haven't used that in years. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I didn't even know I still had it, so oh. I'm going to have to look and see what's there. But let me give you the other two and give you a third one. Okay. The, my main site, which is the Rick Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R, Dot com. That's my main site, and you can access anything else I have from that main site. What you'll find there um, are a lot of free resources. And of course, you can buy my books and that. And uh, but but basically, I mean, there's a free ebook, a 50-page ebook that describes that cycle that we talked about earlier. Um, okay. There's some pod, there's some podcasts. There are a bunch of free articles, and and so. All of that. You don't, and you don't have to sign in. You don't have to give your name and your email address to do all of that. But uh, there's just tons of stuff there free. Um, from that, you can uh, go to my blog, which is changemanagementnews.com, and you can go there directly or you can just access it. And, and there I just talk about, uh, you know, the nice thing about blogs, it doesn't have to be a big article. I can have two sentences worth of something. Uh, or a paragraph or two, and, and, and so it allows me to write things that might never have made it into a full article. And I like blogs, yeah. and so it's uh, the third site. Uh, I wouldn't go to ask about change because I, I frankly I, I didn't know it was still, <laughs> still up. Okay, it's a bit embarrassing. But the the other one that I'm very excited about is called Change OSP, is in Peter ChangeOSP.com, and that stands for Change Open Source Project. And near the end, uh, I guess about, about the beginning of 2009, I started this site. And it's, it's a free site where people can come together and share ideas, uh, share resources on change in organizations. And as of this morning, there are 611 members from over 30 countries. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and on that site, you'll find some, I think, some really stimulating conversations. Um, my ebooks there again. I've done podcasts with a lot of people who I think are thought leaders uh, in the field of leading change, and also people who I think are just really good practitioners. And so, mm -hmm. so Bill, tell me how you how you did that. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so it's and it's an opportunity for. So I put some, I have some kind of YouTube quality videos up there on. Uh, kind of the theory behind the theory for people who are interested in that kind of stuff. But but anybody can put stuff up. And so there will be conversations that are happening in the kind of the full community, if you will. But what I, one thing that I found is that people will look at the profiles that pe other people write. Sure. Yeah, I'd like to contact her. And so these side conversations uh, get going. Um, 
so I'm very excited about that, and that's that's all free. We're going to put the links then to the three active websites. So yeah. I'll swap it and change osp.com for askaboutchange.com, and we'll make those links available on the article that accompanies our podcast. So the, Wonderful. Yeah, single click. Our audience can get right to your websites and enjoy the free ebook and all the other resources that you provide. Super. Well, Rick, I want to thank oh. you not only for your time oh. but for your insights on getting beyond resistance and to effectively managing business change. And, you know, not only did I enjoy your book, but I really appreciated the toolkit references to other insights and tools and materials that you presented the readers of your book throughout the entire edition. So I hope our listeners will pick up a copy of Beyond the Wall of Resistance. And more importantly, I hope that they'll apply the principles and the practices you describe to help them become more effective at getting beyond resistance and really effectively managing their change initiatives. So thank you again for joining us. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Rick Maurer for being with us today and sharing his insights on effective change management. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Rick Maurer and Beyond the Wall of Resistance at www.rickmaurer.com. Until next time, so long.